If you're not already there, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of John. This is one of those messages where I can prove that we're making progress because we just flipped the page into a new chapter. And chapter six is going to begin with the one miracle. There's, do you know there's only one miracle that all of the gospels record? This is it. It's the feeding of the 5,000. What it does, it, because we've got these four gospel accounts today, I'm going to really try to bring in uh, insight. You know, we're, we're going to try to take in the whole story, but from all of these different witness angles to try to determine what's going on. But it's really nice because having them in these other gospel accounts, it gives us the time frame and it also gives us the context surrounding the miracle. Because whether you believe it or not, or whether you, and hopefully you'll believe it after this morning, between John 547 and John 61, there's a lot of stuff that happens. About six months to a year's worth of things in the life of the Lord Jesus happen between those two verses. In fact, if you look at the other gospels, Matthew's chapter four through 14 happen between John 547 and John 61. Mark one chapters one through six happen between these two verses. Luke chapters five through nine happens between these two verses. You wouldn't know that by just reading through John. Now that shouldn't concern you because John's strategy is a little bit different than the other gospel writers. Isn't that right? He's not trying to give a blow-by-blow detailed account of Jesus Christ's life. He's got a very specific purpose for writing. And if you recall, we find that all the way back in John chapter 20. Here's his purpose. He, He just lays it out for us. He says, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He readily admits he's not there to record all of the signs. That's not his purpose at all. But he says, these are written, these signs, the ones recorded here are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, that you may be persuaded and convinced that you can trust in Jesus. Not only is he the Messiah, he says, but he's the son of God. He is God's solution to sin's problem. He goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. This is the man. This is who the entire Bible is pointing about. We looked at that last week. And by the way, There's a benefit. He wants you to trust in Jesus because there's a benefit that comes from trusting in Jesus that believing you might have or you may have life in his name. John is offering each one of us through his gospel the opportunity to receive eternal life and not to be a smart aleck, but eternal life by definition lasts forever. You can't lose it. If it's forever, you can't lose it. Otherwise, he can't call it eternal life. This is how you receive eternal life. It's by being persuaded about who Jesus is and what he did for you. That's enough. And when you trust in him, you have eternal life. So this is John's purpose. He says it. He's not trying to record all of the myriad details in Jesus's life. But one of the things that's unique in John's account, and we're going to spend the next Many weeks, I don't know how many, uh, I didn't count it up, but we're going to spend the next many weeks going through John chapter 6 because what John is going to show us is that this miracle provided an occasion for an incredible teaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, as you go through John chapter 6, you're going to see it and you may know it as the bread of life discourse. It's one of the many times that Jesus makes these great I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am what? hearkening back to, to Moses in the burning bush with the great Yahweh appearing to him in the, in the burning bush. I am that I am sent you. And this is what Jesus is hearkening back to. And so understand this, that although we love miracles, the people of Jesus' days love miracles. In fact, oftentimes the miracles of Jesus make us love him even more because we're like, man, this, this, he's amazing, right? He's, he's awesome. Like not only is he amazing and awesome, he's interesting. I mean, the superlatives, you just run out of things to say about Jesus Christ. So we get excited about that, but understand this, that in the context of John chapter six, this is simply a primary attention grabber for the main message. This is an opening act for the main event. The main event is the teaching, and we'll get there uh, in, a, in a few weeks. And so this morning, I've entitled the message Discipleship Class with Jesus. By the way, if we had a, 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 a Sunday school class with that as an elective, would anyone sign up for that? If Jesus could be here to teach us how to, I would, man, I'd be there every week. You know, I'd be begging for more. So we're going to get a little bit of that in this, this section this morning, as we also try to just put together all of these gospel accounts in one setting. So we're going to try to do all that this morning. And so verse one says, after these things, Jesus went over the sea of Galilee, which is the sea of Tiberias. 
Now, this gives us a time frame right after these things, but not a very specific one. In fact, if you were just reading through uh, the passage, you would think it, it, these things just refers to chapter 5. In fact, if we were teaching a Bible study class, a hermeneutics class, how do you study the Bible? We would use that as a key phrase and say, oh, it's clearly referring to chapter 5. But again, as we said in the introduction, we've had about, we fast forwarded the whole thing about six months to a year here. We, we fast forwarded through really uh, this incredible ministry that Jesus had up in the Galilean region. One of the things that we're going to see from the other accounts is there was some immediate context. There were some things going on in the life of Jesus and his disciples that caused him to go over the Sea of Galilee. By the way, where was Jesus when we finished John chapter 5? He was in Jerusalem, right? He was, he was, he was there in the city of Jerusalem. Now we turn to John 6, 1, and he's up in Galilee. We don't even get the, did he go through Samaria again? We don't even know. We don't, we don't get the trade. Again, that's not John's purpose. He's not trying to record all of these details. But one of the first things we learn that caused Jesus to go across the Sea of Galilee is he had gotten news of John the Baptist's execution. That's found in Matthew chapter 14. And so this is one of those things that I think caused Jesus to go across the sea. In fact, look at Matthew 14, 10 through 13. So he sent, this is speaking of Herod here, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought brought it to her mother. What a couple of charming ladies. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And then check this out. Notice this is a, a causal statement. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the other cities. And so again, he's, he's going to get away. He's needing a, a time of reflection, a place of solitude. And one of the reasons that he did so was because of what he had heard about John the Baptist. Probably this news was heartbreaking to Jesus. Not only was John the Baptist his cousin, right? We learned that earlier in the accounts of the gospels, but it was probably heartbreaking to some of his disciples as well, because remember, some of his disciples used to be John the Baptist's disciples. Did I mess that plural up? Anyways, John the Baptist, disciples, right? They were close to John. They understood what John's role uh, would be. And because of this rejection of John, because of this execution of John, it was a testimony, I think, for Jesus to, to recognize a harbinger of things to come. In fact, if his messenger had been rejected, then it was only a matter of time before he too would be rejected. And so this is where, where things are going. Jesus knows this because he knows all things, but he's starting to see the puzzle pieces fall into place. His rejection is, is coming soon. I, and so I think that was one of the things that caused him to go across the sea to a quieter place. You know, we'll, we'll look at some, some maps here in a second. But on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, that's where all the population was. On the eastern side, it wasn't as populated. So he was going to, to a quieter area to get away. And so that was one of the things that caused him to cross the sea. A second reason uh, that we get from the other gospels is that the disciples had just returned from their own missionary journey. Okay, these 12 disciples had been sent out uh, two by two. And from all accounts, they had had a very successful ministry. We won't get into that because that's kind of a side point. But they had had their successful ministry. They're coming back to Jesus. And now Jesus wants to go across to a non-populated area and catch up with the boys, basically. Catch up with their stories. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 32 says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. One of the things we see as we come into this season of ministry is he wants to hear their, their stories. He wants to hear in uninterrupted stories. Anybody that's ever been around children, little kids, sometimes don't you just say, look, look, you got to go to the other room. I need, your mom's got to be able to finish this story. Or I need to finish talking to your mom about something. Just here, yes, you can have ice cream. I know you've already had three today. Just here, take another one, right? Because you just want this uninterrupted time. Jesus is looking for that. He wants to encourage them. He wants to listen to them. He probably wants to correct some things that have happened. He wants to probably make sense of their experience 
with what they were, what they were seeing and what they had been learning. All of these things go into investing in people. One of the things that you'll see is that this point in Jesus's ministry, it's not brought out as much, but we can, we're going to see it here in the gathering of this crowd. His ministry is at a fever pitch level, fever pitch. He is, he is an absolute rock star right now on uh, in that in that area of Israel people are talking about him wondering about him gathering to listen to him and so the crowds just constantly found him and you can see they did it so much as as Mark told us that they didn't even have time to eat sometimes can you imagine being so busy that you don't have time to eat i'm still upset about Karen and I's wedding reception because the young people that have gotten married recently y'all do it a lot better than we did it because the first thing y'all do now is you go eat first. Then you go visit everybody. That's not how we did it. 23 years ago, yesterday was our wedding. So um, that's not how we did it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you should really clap for her. She's, uh, <laughs> she's put up with a lot. But, but 23 years ago, that's not how we did it. We got to our reception. We went around to greet everybody. By the time we were done greeting everybody, they started all the festivities, the cake cutting, the this. The next thing I know, we're leaving. I didn't even get a chance to eat fajitas. And, and, and we had specifically picked out all you could eat fajitas in Texas to eat. I didn't get a single bite. So we're literally on our way to the hotel to get ready for our flight the next day. And I made Carrie stop at McDonald's. I got a double quarter pounder with cheese meal on my way to the hotel, uh, heading off to our honeymoon. How romantic is that? But these guys were so busy, they couldn't even eat, we see. And so it starts to set the stage for what's about to happen with this miracle. The third reason is given in the other gospel accounts, and this is a little bit more subtle, but Matthew 14 is going to tell us that Jesus began to draw the attention of Herod. That's bad because what had Herod just done to John the Baptist? He had just executed him. He had just had him executed. This guy was, was feeling guilty about that. And what he did is he just assumed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what we read in Matthew 14, one through two. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. And so if Jesus did know about this, it probably made sense for him to distance himself from this guy. In fact, if you look down the western side of the Sea of Galilee, was the, the city of Tiberias. That's where this man resided. So he's getting on the opposite side of the sea. He's staying under the radar. Why did Jesus sometimes go right in full view of the radar? And then why did he pull back and stay under the radar? It's because he was, he didn't want to overshoot God's timing, right? He had an hour. He had a specific hour. And so he was very sensitive to that. You'll see that throughout his life. So there was some multiple reasons just given here after these things in verse one that we gather from the other accounts that show us why Jesus went across the sea for some solitude. Now let's kind of get our geographical bearings um, because that may help. If you're anything like me, uh, sometimes you start talking about all these places in Israel and you just can't really picture it. So I want to kind of bring up some maps, just kind of like people from Michigan do. Have you ever noticed that from Michigan? People tell you, where, where are you from in Michigan? They hold up their hand and they point. Yes. So people are visual, I guess is the point. So we see here in verse one that, that John actually gives us this editorial comment. He says, they went over the Sea of Galilee. And then he says, which is the Sea of Tiberias? Another little clue that John is writing to a Gentile audience. That's how Gentiles would have understood or, or known that sea. That's, they would have known that by that name. And so here's the, the map of Israel we've been using. Again, as I turn around here, Jesus has been down, down here in Jerusalem in John 5. He has come up here and for the last year, he's been doing ministry in Galilee. In fact, we're going to kind of trace that prior to going over across, he's really on this west side of the Sea of Galilee. This is it right here with the Jordan River flowing into it, the Jordan River flowing out of it. That's the, the sea that we're looking at. One of the things that you don't realize, and I've never been to Israel, but I've I've known people that have, and I've seen pictures, right? And so just kind of talking to other people, one of the things you realize is that when you get to the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's actually 700 feet below sea level. It's tucked in, it's surrounded by, by mountains or hills and mountains that we, I guess, depending on where you're from, are they really mountains or not? But they're, they're called mountains right there around the sea. The widest point up here is about eight miles long. The longest north to south from top to bottom is 12 miles. And there's some places in the sea that are 200 feet deep. 
I mean, this is a, this is more than just a little pond in your backyard, right? This is a, this is a large sea. In fact, this is a, uh, a picture of a boat on the Sea of Galilee looking from, by the way, one shore across to the other. That's what's so un- unique about the situation we're going to see is they'll tell you that from any point on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, you can see across it and see other positions on the shoreline. Now, you might not be able to make out someone's face. I mean, we're talking about miles, but you could see large movement of people. You, you can see across the shoreline. That's one picture of the Sea of Galilee. Here's, here's another picture. You can kind of see the mountains in the background. Just a really beautiful area. I would recommend you go if you get a chance. I'd like to go one day. But um, it just kind of gives you a picture of what we're talking about. Now, the question becomes, where did Jesus go and where did he leave from? And so we've got to use the other gospel accounts to kind of put this together. And again, we'll try to bring this map up a couple more times. But in Matthew, we see that his starting point was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, on the Nazareth side. In fact, he had just left Nazareth because, if you recall, a prophet has no honor in his hometown, and he did less miracles there than anywhere else in the region of Galilee. So he's kind of on that west side, on the Nazareth side. Um, and so, again, he, he's rejected in Nazareth. He goes around different villages in Galilee in a circuit teaching. We're going to see that accompanying his teaching were signs and wonders. Why were they always accompanying his teaching? Again, they were designed to verify and validate the messenger and the message. That's what they were there for, to give him credence and to cause him to stand out over and above every other, you know, wannabe <laughs> itinerant teacher that was looking to get into your pocket, basically, at the time. And so he was doing these things. And then finally, Luke, the consummate historian, lets us know that they traveled to Bethsaida. Okay, he, he tells us that in Luke 9, 10 through 11. There's kind of a good uh, topographical map of the Sea of Galilee. Here it is. You've got that eight mile wide swath. You've got this 12 mile length here. That's Bethsaida up here. Okay. And so somewhere from over here on the west side, they had gone across to Bethsaida. Now, I don't know if you can tell, but there's there's some mountainous uh, mountainous ranges here, but there's also a plain right here. That's most likely where this feeding took place. It's kind of right in that area, south of Bethsaida, in that area. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this side was less populated. Typically, it contained more Gentiles than Jews. They had uh, gone across to get some solitude, and this is probably the area they were headed. Now, uh, there's some wild things that happen when they leave. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but when they when they leave, following the feeding of the five thousand, they start to head cro- uh, back across the lake, probably from about this area back to Capernaum. And we're going to see that they end up in Gennesaret. And there's a reason for that. You'll see there's a storm that takes them. But, but again, that's getting too far ahead of our, in fact, that's getting into the fifth sign that John hand selected. We're going to stay in the fourth sign this morning. And so uh, again, they ended up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And one of the things we see from the text is these crowds just began following him. And when we say great multitude, we're going to talk about what that number might be, but it was a great multitude. It says, and then a great multitude in verse two followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Before we get too much into the verse, I I want you to notice all the verbs. Okay. All of you grammar geeks, notice all the verbs in this verse. Okay. They're all what we call in the Greek an imperfect tense, which portrays ongoing or continual action in the past. Okay. So as you read through that, just read into it, continual action. Then a great multitude kept on following him because they kept on seeing his signs, which he kept on performing on those who were diseased. Okay. This is, this is the thrust of what they're saying. So this wasn't a one-time healing with organs and trumpets and, and, and a planned get together. This wasn't a one-time healing event. This was a lifestyle. This was ongoing, verifiable, you know, personally witnessed signs and wonders. There was this constant miracle train and constant stream of people gathering around him. And the idea communicated as they followed him is they just kept on coming and coming. At what point was the crowd 1,000 people? At what point was the crowd 1,200? At what point did it jump from 1,200 to 1,700 and finally get to 5,000 men, which don't even include the women and the children? At what point does it, it happens a little bit at a time and then it just keeps clustering. And by the way, 
just think about the time that you have been walking down a sidewalk, walking down a street, driving down a road, and you see a gathering of people. Most of you just walk right on and don't even look, right? You're not, you have no interest. No, we're, we're, that's what we call rubbernecking, right? On the road, everyone's like looking to see what's, what's going on because we're interested when crowds gather because it tells us what? Something amazing is going on or something amazing is about to happen. In fact, growing up in middle school, what did I know when I saw a crowd gathering in the hallway? Yeah, we weren't getting excited about a test. We weren't getting excited about what the teacher was about to say. It was, there was a fight going down and everyone wanted to watch somebody else get bludgeoned, I guess, you know, so, but this great multitude just kept following him. And it's not mentioned in John. You can't find the number in John, although we we tie this to the other gospel accounts. But when you look at the other accounts, there were 5,000 men. Now, if you safely estimate, and, and how do you safely estimate that? Because not every man is married. We know that. Not every man has children. Not every man has one child. Some men, you know, have more. So when you try to average that out and you figure maybe one woman and one child per man on average spread out across that crowd of 5,000 men, you're looking at 15,000 people as a conservative estimate. I've heard commentators say that because, you know, Jewish families always had more than one child. I mean, making this, that it could have been 20 to 25,000 people. I mean, this is mind blowing the, the popularity that Jesus had at this point. And one of the reasons for their eagerness to, to follow him and to be involved in these large crowds follows in the very next phrase. It's because, um, and some of them even ran ahead of him on fur, foot, as we as we see from the other accounts. They they saw where he was going across the lake, and they literally ran around the lake. To, and some of them beat him there. Some of them were fast, apparently, running on that terrain. They beat him there. And so, why were they so eager? Well, the text tells us they were eager because they saw the signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. Because they, again, continually saw with their own eyes his signs, which he had continually performed on the disease. Again, as I said, it wasn't a one-time healing. This was an ongoing, public, visible healing ministry. And, and it reminds us again that John is not recording all of the miracles here. He's just, this is plural. How many are there? We don't even know. <laughs> we all sit there today and we're like, man, Jesus is amazing. You don't even know how amazing he is. You, you don't even know everything about him. And you still think he's amazing. And that's, what, that's what's going to be so mind-blowing when we get into eternity. Is we're going to start learning some of the things that we haven't been able to learn yet. And I guess, and I'm going to tell you this, he's only going to get better than what you know today. He's only going to get better. And this is proof. There's things that he is just doing. And it's like, John's like, ah, oh, ho-hum, yeah, he was just healing. What? Ho-hum, nothing? Like, Give me some details, my man. I want to know what's going on because he's so incredible. But John doesn't do that. Again, that's not his purpose. He doesn't get distracted like some pastors, right? He's he's kind of sticking to the script, right? He's sticking to what he's doing. But he's just showing you this is why the crowds were following him. He wasn't doing weird, unverifiable miracles like, oh, yeah, I think your foot's an inch longer now. I think, yeah. No, it was verifiable stuff. They saw it with their own eyes. It was convincing to them. This is what he's seeing, or this is what the crowd is saying. So once again, we say that it's okay for people to be eager to see these miracles. This is exactly what God designed for these miracles. This was the very purpose of signs was to validate and verify Jesus. There's been this like uh, false kind of thinking that if, that if people in the Bible believe just on the basis of miracles, that that's somehow faulty. Not according to John. That was his whole purpose. That was why he even recorded him in his book in the first place. And so that people would believe in Jesus as a result of that. And so again, when we talk about why is, is God getting ready to do this sign through Jesus, it's designed to grab their attention and to communicate a message. And we're going to see Jesus is also going to use it to disciple his disciples. You know, we, we look at Peter, we think of John, we think of James, we think of all these disciples, and we think that we look at them now, we think these guys always had everything together. They didn't. <laughs> they didn't have everything together the day they died. We got to stop putting these guys up on a pedestal of perfection. They were not perfect at all. Now, it's incredible God used tools like them to do what he did. 
But they're still learning at this point, and we're going to see they had a lot to learn still. Jesus has still got these men in training. But again, these, this miracle is about to do is just the opening act for the main event. And oftentimes we think it's the exact opposite. It's like, oh, he's teaching, ho-hum. Oh, but the miracle. No, no, the miracle was designed to get you ready to listen to the teaching, to take it in, to receive it. When and where was Jesus doing these signs? Remember, lots of stuff going on. John the Baptist getting executed. His, his disciples are out doing ministry. They're on mission work. Where had he been doing these signs? Well, apparently he'd been doing it while they were on their two-by-two missionary journey. That's when he was doing these miracles. And they had been seeing these crowds had just been following him, seeing him. Some of them may even seen the signs that his disciples had done through his own power. And so they're, they're getting very interested and intrigued in Jesus and his entourage. One of the things that we don't see recorded in John, but we're going to learn from the other gospel accounts is once they're, once the crowds made their way to him, Jesus continued healing them. He continued teaching them and he did it because he had compassion for them. That's very important here because as we get into the miracle, you're going to see that Jesus's entourage, his disciples did not have compassion. (laughs) They were the exact opposite. They needed to learn this from the Lord Jesus. In fact, one example of that's in Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. You know, it's so amazing. When I go away for solitude in my house and if someone disrupts me, my first emo- emotion is not compassion for them. It's usually the opposite. Like, what are you doing? I, that was always the big joke in my house is, me yelling at the kids because I'm trying to study my Bible. Get out of my office. I'm trying to study my Bible. And, and literally when that left my mouth, I was like, that, that just doesn't sound right. You know, that just didn't pass the smell test right there. So, um, but anyways, that's typically not your response. Jesus is trying to get away. He's trying to get into a quiet place to, to focus. There's some things on his mind here. And yet these crowds won't let him. And instead of being like, oh, man, I wish these people would leave me alone. He's like, man, I, my heart goes out to him. This is how he, he felt and how he cared. And by the way, what a great application. You can never wear out the Lord Jesus Christ with your prayers. You can never wear him out to where he's like, oh, it's you again. Gosh, can you just give me a minute or two by myself? I mean, that will never, that will never happen, which is, is just so amazing. So, He's looking for quiet time. Verse three, he, he went up on the mountain. He sat with his disciples. Again, uh, notice that the, the multitudes were continually coming. They weren't leaving him alone. He was healing them. He did have compassion on them. He's still trying to steal some quiet moments with his disciples. Uh, you know, and again, he's, he's investing in these guys. He, you got to understand this is, these 12 are his investment. These are the, very men he's going to leave the church with, well, 11, right? The 12th one's not going to make it. Um, it, These 11 men that he's investing in because he's going to turn the church over to him when he leaves. That's about a year off, by the way. His crucifixion at this stage of John is about a year away. It's not that far away. He's training these guys. He's continuing to disciple them. He's trying to challenge and encourage them and teach them on how they should think. Now, which mountain did he go up onto? We don't know. It just, we simply don't know. There was mountains uh, surrounding the Sea of Galilee as we, as we saw. Now, in verse four, it's interesting because it, when you look at verse four, it's like we get this random fact. You're like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> it's Passover time. Oh, okay, that's cool. And it actually, but what's so ironic is it's actually going to set the stage for the timing and content of Jesus's teaching later in the chapter. So we'll, we'll come back to this a couple of times because this establishes the context. Cause, cause a lot of people get into John six and, and, and teaching and, and toward the end, Jesus is like, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And you're like, what? What is this guy talking about? Largely there's confusion because we've missed verse four. We, we've missed the context of how the master teacher is using elements that would have been fresh and vibrant in the minds of his audience because Passover was approaching. And we turn it into this weird cannibalism thing instead of just showing that he's teaching them. He's using examples that would be familiar to them, that would be not only familiar, but at the height of their thinking at this point in time. And so we get that in verse four, Passover was near. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews 
was near. And so again, this gives us a time reference. It gives us uh, its nearness to this event. It gives significance to Jesus's message, as I, as I just said. Now, one of the things it also does is in the book of John, it's the second Passover that's mentioned. John's going to mention a third one when we get to chapter 13. And so what that kind of gives us an idea is that in chapter six, where we're at now, we're about a year out from his crucifixion. Okay, so it kind of just gives us some time frames. And one of the things that we're going to see about Jesus's message when we finally get there, I'm just kind of casting our thoughts ahead here, is it's going to be a unique message for a unique context, for a unique audience, this bread of life discourse. It's in the Passover season. He's going to refer to himself as bread. Was there bread involved in the Passover meal? Yes. Was it broken? Was it eaten? Yes, that's exactly. Was there a cup of wine representing blood? Yes, it represented the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorpost, right? So there's lots of imagery here that Jesus is going to capitalize on as he's teaching later. In fact, the people were already thinking about blood and flesh and lambs and unleavened bread. That's what was on their mind. And so he uses that, we'll see, as he teaches. And so one of the things about Passover is very nationalistic celebration. It was a, it was a time to just like, go Israel, go, go Yahweh, you're going to deliver us one day. So it was a very nationalistic time. We're going to see that when Jesus provides this, this meal in the wilderness, this feeding of, we'll say the 15,000, the 5,000 men, 15,000 total. We're going to see at the end in verse 15, they want to take him by force and make him their king. Very nationalistic fervor going on here. So this kind of sets the stage for us with Passover. And so as we move forward in verses five through seven, we start to see this discipling process of his disciples. We start to, if we kind of slow down, we'll see it. Verses five through seven says, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now, before we, before we kind of look at these verses, I want you to see the natural human progression. It's kind of, it's kind of funny. It's actually kind of funny. So the disciples are kind of brought into the mix. Again, when you're teaching somebody, when you're discipling somebody, you're not just, that's not just dictating to them what to do all the time. It's bringing them into the thought process behind solving the problem. This is what Jesus is doing here. But you're going to notice the disciples, and this is typically how we solve problems too, okay? You're going to notice that the first way they want to solve the problem is money. All these people need to eat, okay? You know, how much money do we, let's let's count how much money. Ooh, man, ooh, that's going to be a lot. It's kind of the deal. Money wasn't going to work. Then you're going to see That was what Philip did. Then you're going to see they go to other people. Andrew goes into the crowd. Now, part of that was Jesus had encouraged them to do that. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I think he did that later. But they go into the crowd. They start looking for food. Andrew tracks down five loaves of bread and two fish. Give him credit. The other 11 didn't find anything, right? So he, at least he got some food. But what do they realize there? Other people, human resources, not enough. So now we got money is not, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough human resources. What's the third solution? We don't pick it up in John. We get it from the other gospel account. You get rid of the problem. Send them home, let them fend for themselves. We can't buy it for them. We don't have enough human resources. Just, just get them out of here. That's their problem. That's their solution. Now, what solution had they left out? And what's the solution that we often leave out in our daily life when we're facing overwhelming circumstances and odds? Jesus Christ. That's the solution they left out. This is where Jesus is trying to guide his disciples. If one, one had just attended a Sunday school class at Grace Community Fellowship, right? Just one Sunday. They'd be like, oh, Jesus, right? You know, like it could, they could have known. They could have known, but they're, they're in the moment. They're thinking of strategic solutions and they follow just a typical human model of solution making. Let's see money. Let's see resources. Okay, can't do that. Just let them fend for themselves. Who cares, right? That's the deal. So Jesus has got a better solution. He's going to take care of it. He wanted his disciples for all of these things to sink into their mind as he's showing them. What's interesting is every other gospel account seems to indicate the disciples as the ones initiating the conversation about the crowds needing something to eat. Here we have Jesus initiating. 
so that's interesting. But I think what's interesting is that Jesus says to Philip, this was probably a private conversation. What's also kind of fascinating is Jesus used, or John uses the imperfect tense of the word said here. It means that Jesus kept on saying this to Philip. And I think the idea is, is he's looking at, at, at Philip. He's, he's saying, Philip, man, where are we going to get, how are we going to feed these people? Just throughout the day, he's probably just repeating this as the crowds grow. And he probably repeated it several times. He, he may have said it like private comments over and over to Philip. Wow. Where are we going to buy enough bread to feed these people? Wow. This is, this is getting out of hand. Wow. This is getting amazing. He, he probably just was having this private conversation with Philip and apparently he kept on saying it to Philip. Now, why? Well, the text is going to give us one reason, but contextually we, we know from other passages that Philip was from Bethsaida. This was a hometown boy. They're in or near his hometown. And the idea is, Philip, where can we go? You've got the resources. You know who's who. Where can we go get the bread? Where can we buy it? And so he's repeating this to Philip. But then again, the text gives us another illustration or or another motivation of Jesus, very clear. But he said this to test him. It wasn't like Jesus was looking for places to buy bread. He knew what he was going to do. In fact, that's what the, the passage will bring out. He's saying this to test him. He wants to Try Philip. He wants to prove him in either a good or a bad sense. The idea is he put him to the test to see how he would respond. And bless Philip, he's he's a great example of a bad example, but we are all like that too. So I'm not picking on Philip at all. But what Philip should have said, Lord, I don't know, but you do. You're the Messiah. You can handle this. I know you can handle this. That should have been his response, but he doesn't, man. He gets his mental calculator out. He's like, okay, 15,000 people. And he starts, he starts calculating what it is. By the way, how do you know if your student or disciple is really getting what you're teaching them? How do you know if your kids are really getting what you're teaching them or anybody that you're teaching? How do you know? Well, typically you test them. You quiz them. You give them an opportunity to either succeed or flounder under supervision, obviously, but you give them that opportunity, and this is what Jesus is doing here. They've had a lot of interaction with Jesus, two years at this point. He, I think he's kind of hoping they're starting to put some puzzle pieces together. And bless their heart, they're just like you and me. They're not learning quickly enough, right? This is what's going on in this scenario. Jesus is getting them ready to take over the church. And so he kept on giving Philip this, this opportunity to make this connection to this situation, the amazing Messiah he spent the last two years with. Unfortunately, Philip's response was very horizontal. He responded like the way many of us would respond in a similar situation. He got his mental calculator out. He said, it'd be 200 denarii. That's about eight months worth of wages. If you take the average American salary from 2022, you're looking at $38,000 right there that they needed to buy just a little bread for people. Even the cost of food in our day, I mean, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably old news. This is a lot of money that they needed in a short amount of time. And even if they had that money, which they don't, it wouldn't be enough, the text tells us, that every one of them may have a little. Can you imagine spending $38,000 or 200 denarii and buying food, but, but you have to limit that and say, now you, you know, that one inch square piece of bread is too much. You're going to have to rip that in half because we got to make sure everyone gets a little. And this is what he's saying. Even that amount of money wouldn't buy enough for every one of them to have a little. In fact, the other gospel accounts, again, trying to tie all this in, tells us that this was late in the day by the time they realized it. What, by the way, what, what typically happens at bakery shops late in the day? They're out of product. <laughs> so, so you start to see Jesus is painting all of the things that they want to trust in. The money, don't have it. The resources, don't have it. You see how he's just painting this impossible scenario for them. And I think he's giving them real visual aids that they're seeing. They're seeing this crowd. They're calculating the money. They're thinking through how much bread they would need. And the fact that it's late in the day, it wouldn't even been available. All of these things really just heighten the awareness of this overwhelming, impossible situation. Why did Jesus do it? For he knew what he was going to do. He, he tested Philip. He already knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to perform a miracle providing for these people and their physical needs. In fact, earlier in the day, Mark 6, 34, we had looked at this, said he was moved with compassion for them. Why? 
because they were like a sheep not having a shepherd. You know, a sheep without a shepherd, oftentimes they will die. They will literally be in a field with green grass and they'll go sleep where there's no grass and they'll die right there with grass next to them in the field. They can't swim. They'll go into raging rivers. They can't go down certain cliffs. They'll just walk right off and fall to their death. I mean, it's crazy. This is what sheep without shepherds do. They're, they're dangerous to themselves. As I've joked, it's like the three-year-old that's always trying to pull the big screen TV on top of their head. I mean, they're just dangerous to themselves. And those parents that have children that are going to be walking soon, just remember I said that. You'll remember because you cannot sit down and rest for any minute because you're trying to save their life every second of their day. So Jesus asks Philip this question. By the way, when someone comes in and just always gives you the answers, you never have to engage your brain. But when they put the question to you and they say, help me solve this, and they make you think about it, and then you come to the end of yourself and you don't have a solution, and then they provide the solution, it stands out a lot more to you. Because now you've interacted with the impossibility of the situation. You know, I believe he's doing this with Philip. And so again, it was probably this, this same monetary calculation. I, I, think, I think the other disciples are, are around. They probably did this mental calculation themselves. They evaluated the potentially dangerous scenarios, sending these people home in the dark without food, et cetera. And this is probably what prompted them to approach Jesus and say, send them away and they can buy themselves some bread. Real pastoral of these guys to be thinking of this crowd as sheep. They didn't give a rip. Just get them out of here. They don't have bread. That's on them, right? You can just hear the practical ones. Oh, they, I mean, if they followed you, they should have known. They should have prepared. You know, they, I, that's on them. They weren't ready. You know, they should have left three hours ago. You know, that, that was kind of their mindset. And so notice again, this, this lack of pastoral or shepherding care, just send them away and let them fend for themselves. And I believe this is one of the things that Jesus was trying to teach him right here. Shepherds, they got a shepherd. Shepherds have to shepherd. You guys are going to be shepherds of my sheep. In fact, when Peter denies Christ and Christ restores him, which we'll see at the end of the gospel of John, what does he say? He says, Peter, do you love me? You know, I love you. And what does Jesus say three times? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, right? It's, it's the shepherding imagery. Did Peter learn it? I think so. First Peter 5. He refers to himself as an under shepherd of the chief shepherd. So hopefully he got it. I think he did. But one of the things we see here in this uh, story is they didn't see the multitude as their responsibility. They didn't see the multitudes as Jesus' responsibility. Again, uh, let's be fair to them. They had just come back from a missionary trip. They were probably looking forward to some downtime, probably looking forward to some me time, right? As we, as we like to say, some rest. And, and they didn't have any. It was so busy they couldn't even eat. And they're just like, oh, give me a break. Do we have to be around these people all the time? It's like, a, you know, pastor, a, a pastor, uh, one time I heard jokes said, man, I love being a pastor if it wasn't for the people, you know? And I'm like, you're probably in the wrong line of work, my man. You probably should go do something else. And this is kind of what they're like. Man, we love the ministry if it wasn't just for the people. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the deal. Let's kick them out of here. By the way, this is too, it's, it's interesting. It's probably why Jesus is kind of, we don't get it here in the book of John. We get it everywhere else in the other gospel accounts. It must have been startling. He said, you give them something to eat. I love that because what had they just done? They had just got done mentally calculating how impossible this was. And now Jesus says, you know what? Do the impossible. And what should that have, what should that have prompted them to do? One of, one of two things, go home and curl up in the fetal position and never leave their bed for the rest of their life. Or look at the one who created the universe and say, Lord, I can't, you can't, I can't do it, but you can and if you can't do it, we're in big trouble anyways, right? But that wasn't their response. Jesus, I think is, again, he's teaching them something. And one of the things that we learn, I think it's so important. When God commands us to do something, he will provide the resources and the empowerment to accomplish it. Don't ever doubt that. This is exactly what he's going to do in this situation. See, he's discipling his men here. He's teaching them how to think. He's teaching them how they should see things where they should go when they're in situations like this in the future. Do you think the disciples ever faced overwhelming odds in the future in their ministry and life? 
that they couldn't draw back on this event this day. Remember how helpless they felt, how overwhelmed they felt and said, you know what? This time I'm going to trust the Lord. I didn't do that in the wilderness. I didn't do that in Bethsaida, but this time I'm going to trust the Lord. In fact, how many times has God come to your aid throughout your life? How many times has he delivered you in some way, whether it be financial, emotional, whatever, you, you fill in the blank. How many times has he done that for each one of us? And yet when a trial hits tomorrow, you know, the first thing we're going to do, money, human resources, I'll just get it away. <laughs> That's how we approach every trial. Money, no resources, just get it away from me. And there's a better solution. There's always going to be a better solution. It shouldn't be the fourth solution. In fact, if you can move number four up to number one, you don't even need oftentimes the other three. When you have the Lord, you've got everything. And this is what I believe he's teaching his disciples. And I believe what we can learn as well from his discipling here. Now, Philip makes a very hopeful, or I'm sorry, Andrew makes a very hopeful su- suggestion here. It says one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And so what Andrew says to Jesus here, when considering, you could look at this one of two ways. On the surface, this is the most ridiculous statement. One of the most ridiculous statements in all the Bible. 15,000 people. Jesus, here's a boy's lunch. <laughs> what? <laughs> What do you want him to do with that, right? It's kind of the idea. So you could look at it that way, or you could say, man, somewhere underneath <laughs> in the mind of Andrew, he was hoping that Jesus could do something from it. So let's view him positively. Let's say, hey, he had a little bit of faith. He was bringing it to the Lord Jesus. But when we talk about these loaves of bread, you know, sometimes you see these pictures and it's like these big loaves of bread that you can't even, you can't even buy at Kroger, you know? It's like, whoa, man, it's like bread, bread on steroids, you know? These loaves that he's talking about, they were, they were the size of like a hamburger bun. That's all this little boy had. It, it was the food of the poor, the, the size of the fish. It, he wasn't pulling out, you know, rainbow trout, you know, out of, out of the sea. I mean, these were little sardines, okay? So hamburger-sized bread, two little sardines. It's a little boy's lunch. And, and not only that, it's a little boy. It's a poor little boy's lunch, right? This is like... You know, butter sandwiches or something, not even peanut butter, you know, it's like butter sandwiches, you know, going to school or what have you. And to put it in perspective, I think we can understand this a little bit, but take a Chick-fil-A kid's meal, right? That's, and that's actually more food than probably what this little boy had. Take a Chick-fil-A kid's meal and go try to feed the crowd in State Farm Arena while they're watching an Atlanta Hawks game. That's the equivalent. That's about 15 to 20,000 people. If you've ever been to a stadium, Watch the basketball. That's how many people are here. Again, just to give us this visual image of what's going on in this scenario. In fact, in Mark's account, it, it, it appears that Jesus actually told, told them to go see how much food was available. So what is he doing? He's giving them this visual aid of seeing, man, we don't have any food. He's setting them up for this miracle so that when they see what he does, there's no question about how he did it. There's no like, well... Maybe he had some more food in the back somewhere. Maybe, maybe someone just kept feeding him. There's no, there's, they've scoured the resources. They know all they've got is five loaves and these two small fish. That's all they got. And so Jesus, out of that, <clears throat> reinforces everything about this situation that he's trying to reinforce. So here's a lad that's got barley loaves, two fish. What are they among so many? Again, this is a boy's lunch. Lad means somebody below 12 years of age, that word in the Greek. So he's a young boy. And again, what does, what are they among so many? This perfect visual aid as, you know, Andrew's holding this food and he looks behind Jesus. He just sees this mountainside full of people. I mean, I just imagine having a Chick-fil-A kid's meal and just looking, sorry to keep bringing up Chick-fil-A. I know you can't even eat it today. That's so unfair to, to you guys, but he's holding this kid's meal and he looks at it and he sees 15 to 20,000 people. I mean, just the overwhelming you know, senses off the chart here, sight, sound, smell. They're not going to forget this. This is how Jesus sets them up. And it's going to stick with them for a long time. Man's inability always sets the stage for God's exhibition of power. And and this is what we're going to see. I love what one commentator said. He said, our fitness in the Christian life is to recognize our unfitness. 
He says, our ability is actually when we recognize our inability. In fact, that's how each one of us got saved. If you're sitting here today and you know that you're going to heaven, you got saved because one day you realized that you were not good enough to go to heaven. And instead of being religious and trying to fight against what the Bible says and trying to be better so that you can shake your fist at God and say, you better let me in, I'm good. This is how many religious people think. We say, you know what, God, I'm not good enough, but you are. I can't do it, but you did. That's the mindset of, of grace. That's the mindset of the Bible. That's the mindset of when we actually understand what we're up against. We're not trying to just religiously bump ourselves across the finish line. We're not even on the track. And until you realize that, you're going to keep trying to run a race that you can never win. Here's the good news. The Savior won the race for you 2,000 years ago. Will you trust in what he did for you or not? And you know, the Christian life is designed to be lived the same way. These men were learning to live life, not in their own strength, but in the, the ability and strength of another, just as Jesus did with God the Father, as we looked at in John 5. That's why Paul says it so much better than even these commentators. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice it doesn't say for if I am weak, because you are always weak. When you are weak, then you are truly strong. We spend most of our life trying not to be weak, don't we? We try most of our life trying to be strong. We don't want to be exposed as weak. This is where true power lies. This is where God provides solutions for you that won't make sense to the average mind. This is when the Lord Jesus is carrying you under his wings, so to speak. And you're not, you feel like you're walking and you're not walking, you're flying because he's got you in the palm of his hand. And I just mixed about 400 metaphors. Sorry about that. But you remember the dialogue between Jesus? Let me just make a couple more comments and then I want to close up this morning. You remember the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples back in John 4? He tells them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. And he, he refers specifically to the spiritual food of doing the Father's will and finishing the Father's work. And in this case, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. God the Father's will and work was to do a physical miracle to provide physical food from this overwhelmingly meager starting point. And so this morning, we simply set the stage for the miracle. I wanted to kind of combine all of the gospels to give us a full perspective leading up to this. Next time, in a few weeks, we're going to see the miracle, and we're also going to observe the response to the miracle, because it sets up the, the teaching that he does at the end of chapter 6. And so let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I we look at these events in his life and we just can't hardly believe that a person like you exists. One who is so powerful and yet at the same time so loving. One who is, who is so pure, who does not lower standards but keeps them very high, but also provides a way for us to meet the standards. Uh, you're just incredible, Lord. And may we just walk away from this, this room just completely blown away by who you are, what you've accomplished for us in the past and what you're doing in our lives today. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.